0: If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. You are listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. We'll start off today with the news from Lafayette. The Lafayette Council votes to rename Mary Miller Theater. The Lafayette City Council on Tuesday night voted 5-2 to two to rename the Mary Miller Theater and add educational context to other Mary Miller commemorative art in the city. Mayor J.D. Manget and Council Member Brian Wong voted against the proposal. Meanwhile, the council voted 5-2 to two against changing the Mary Miller sculpture or the name of North Miller Avenue or South Miller Avenue. The council also voted to leave the Mary Miller mural in place, but to add historical and educational context on Miller. With all three votes, council members Tonya Briggs and Tim Barnes voted against the majority. Lafayette Public Library Director Melissa Hissel said that there was a resident-driven petition in 2020 to rename the Miller apartment complex as the Miller name is closely associated with the Ku Klux Klan's history in Lafayette. Hissel said that the petition was the momentum that the city needed to seriously discuss all the Miller name city property. Mangott said that he believes that the Mary Miller name should stay. He said that removing her name will not uplift marginalized communities. He said that the city should not remove its history, but instead educate the community about Lafayette's history and how marginalized communities were treated. Mangot said that Miller was not in the KKK, but her descendants were, and that sucks, unquote, as the Miller name has become closely associated with racial discrimination. He said that the city should direct its effort toward helping communities of color and making efforts to combat discrimination in the city. Wong said that his family has experienced a lot of discrimination as Asian Americans, but people need to remember that history, in order to grow, he said that adding context to the Miller name will help the city move forward. If we erase, we will forget, and once we forget, history will repeat itself, Wong said. Barnes said that the council represents the challenges that people face, He said that Lafayette has a long history of discrimination. He said he believes that the Miller name should be removed from the city as it brings trauma for communities of color. Hissel said that the cost to rename North Miller Avenue and South Miller Avenue would be low, but would significantly impact the residents who live on those streets. A street name change would mean that residents would have to change anything that includes their mailing address, such as their License their bills, their homeowner's insurance, and delivery platforms. It could also involve mortgage holders and title companies. Elizabeth Lichtenstein, chair of the Lafayette Human Rights Commission, said that while she could not recommend anything to counsel as chair of the commission, she wanted to speak as an individual. Lichtenstein said that the problem with the Miller commemorative naming in town is not Miller's personal racist actions, but... That Miller's name is intertwined with upholding systems of white supremacy. I think we need to make our response actually dismantle oppression and bridge divides. And we should not it should not just be a cosmetic feel-good facelift, she said. The advisory board of the Lafayette Public Library, Lafayette Cultural Arts Commission and the Public Art Committees had meetings about the potential Miller renaming. The LCAC recommended that the city could add an educational plaque to the Miller sculpture, prioritize community education about the history of Lafayette containing the narratives of marginalized, marginalized communities. The PAC recommended that council should receive legal advice about artists' intellectual property rights before modifying or removing the sculpture or mural. The PAC also states that they believe that there is currently not enough information about Miller and her involvement with institutional racism to reach consensus about potential modification or removal of the Mary Miller mural. Barbecue is back. Wayne's smoke shack reopens after sustaining damage from the Marshall Fire. Texas is in Superior. Well, at least the barbecue is. Wayne and Sam Shelnut opened Wayne's Smoke Shack, a Texas style barbecue restaurant in Superior back in 2013. The restaurant had to close after suffering extreme smoke damage due to the Marshall Fire. But in January, the Shelnuts were able to reopen the smoke shack, and they've been overwhelmed by the support they have received. The Shelnuts used to live in the Sagamore neighborhood in Superior. Sam Shelnut said that it was perfect as Wayne's Smoke Shack is located in the Superior Marketplace, so their home and business used to be within a mile of each other. They lost their home in the fire, and the restaurant received significant smoke damage as well as water damage as the fire burned a hole in the roof, and the snow that came after the flood flooded the restaurant when it melted. With two young children to take care of, And Sham Shelnut, seven months pregnant at the time, it was a lot to cope with. Yeah, it was a lot, Sam Shelnut said. We're resilient people, and we just had to take it one day at a time. It was probably one of the most challenging years of our life. Sam Shelnut said that Wayne Shelnut was absolutely determined to reopen the restaurant within a year of the fire, but they had to start from almost nothing. Almost everything in the restaurant had to be replaced. She said that despite all the hardship, her family received so much love and support from the community. We're overwhelmed from the support. That really helped us to get back on our feet, she said. Sam Shelnut said that friends let them stay in their house after the fire. Friends donated clothes and even let them borrow cars. She added that fans of the smoke shack or even complete strangers offered support. She said that there are still plenty of hard days full of grieving, but... There are also days where her family is in awe of people's compassion. Sam Shelnut said that the Smoke Shack brings Central Texas-style meat to Colorado. She said that the brisket and pork shoulder get smoked for over 24 hours. And there's also smoked salmon, sausage, turkey, and a variety of other meat options, sides, and desserts. Wayne's Smoke Shack prides itself on having fresh food every day. She said that whether someone is the first in the door or their last customer of the day, they are getting the same great quality. She added that on their reopening day, the line to get in wrapped around the building. People were willing to wait over two hours just to get in. She said that the overwhelming support from the community has been incredible. We were busy before the fire, but coming back after the fire has just exceeded all of our expectations. We've broken every record that we've had before the fire, she said. Wayne's Smoke Shack reopened on January 6th. And while it's only open on Fridays and Saturdays from 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. or until they sell out, business has never been better, Sam Shownutt said. She said that after the Marshall Fire, her and her husband valued their work-life balance so much more now. Being open just two days a week allows them to cut down on business costs, ensure that all the food is of the greatest quality it can be, and still enjoy time together as a family. But there's still more rebuilding to be done. And when Wayne Shelnut isn't in charge of cooking all the meat at the restaurant, he is helping to build a farm for his family and restaurant. Wayne and Sam Shelnut's goal is to have a farm to help source the smoke shack with vegetables, goat cheese, and other products. Jordan Freeberg has been working as a prep cook at the Smoke Shack since the reopening. Freeberg said that working at the Smoke Shack reminds her of her passion for hospitality work, and she is very happy to work there. She also said that the Smoke Shack is one of a kind. She said that she's amazing how Wayne and Sam survived through the fire and how the community has supported them. When it reopened, the amount of people there with the dedication, it just put me in awe. It is awesome, Freeberg said. Freeberg recalls that once... Once, when she was cashing out a customer, his young son was standing mesmerized by all the different meat options. She laughed, and the kid quickly snuck a piece of meat from his dad. His dad said, you really couldn't wait, could you? And his kid was like, no, dad, I'm so excited, Freeburg recalled. Sam Shawnette said that reopening was a big step. For in her and her husband's healing process after the fire and they are grateful for all the community support. Superior Board of Trustees supports good neighbors of lions. The Superior Board of Trustees will support a letter that's being sent to Boulder County Commissioners addressing land use code violation of a cement plant in Lyons. Good Neighbors of Lyons, that's a residential group, are working to uphold Boulder County land use codes to CMEX, which could result in CMEX's termination. Lyons Mayor Holly, Holly Rogan and Good Neighbors of Lyons have asked for formal support from Superior to sign a letter with other local municipalities to be sent to the Boulder County Commissioners, encouraging and petitioning the Boulder County Land Use Director to give notice of termination to CMEX Alliance for non-conforming use. The Board of Trustees voted 6-1 to one to send the letter. Trustee Jen Cowish voted against sending the letter. According to the Good Neighbors website, CMEX is the bigger, biggest contributor to pollution in Boulder County. It emits over 370,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year. CMEX is a coal-fired plant that was first approved under the 1960s air quality standards and was grandfathered into the Boulder County Land Use Code, in 1994. Good Neighbor states that since the recent closure of the Dow Flats mine, CMEX has started to deliver all raw materials to the plant. This has resulted in 10 to 15 35 ton trucks delivering raw materials along Colorado 36 and Colorado 66 to the plant every hour. According to the draft letter that will be sent to Boulder County Commissioners, that has caused the Colorado Department of Transportation to require a new access permit. And according to Good Neighbors, a grandfathered use gets terminated when there is an enlargement or alternation to the use, which CMEX has done after the closure of the mine neighbor states that because of CMEX's grandfathered use, any carbon emissions improvements by CMEX could terminate their use. Cement production is the third biggest polluter in the world, trustee Jason Serbu said. It's just massively destructive to the environment. Serbu said that as destructive as cement production is to the environment, there's still demand for cement, especially with the rebuilding after the fire. Good Neighbors states that there are other cement plants in Colorado that produce less emissions than Cemex that can still meet the demands for cement. CMEX representatives said that the claims Good Neighbors has made in their letter and petition to the Boulder County Commissioners are not true. The statements in the petition do not accurately reflect CMEX's current or historical operations. CMEX disputes any suggestion that its operations fail to comply with permitted pre existing non conforming use. CMEX intends to continue working with community to address concerns with its operations, a CMEX representative said in an email. And in more Superior news, a man charged in connection with an accidental shooting in Superior is now set for trial, though attorneys have left open the possibility of a plea agreement being reached. Angel Serratos, age 23, pleaded not guilty Wednesday in Boulder District Court to second-degree assault, causing serious bodily injury with a deadly weapon and tampering with physical evidence. Cerrado's attorney, Steve Lewis initially asked for another arraignment hearing Wednesday as he had submitted a plea proposal to prosecutors. The prosecutors said the sides were still a ways apart negotiations, and with Serato's on a fourth arraignment, attorneys decided instead to set the case for a four-day trial starting on August 7th. Boulder District Judge Patrick Butler told Lewis he could request an earlier hearing if a plea agreement was reached. Cerrados remains out of customer custody on a personal reconnaissance pond. According to an affidavit, Cerrados was at a small party at his apartment at 1995 East Colton Road in Superior on June 11th. Witnesses said two handguns and an AR-style rifle were on the table, unloaded with their magazines next to them. According to the affidavit, some people at the party were playing with the guns and pointing them when Serratos shot a 21-year-old man in the chest. The victim was taken to a hospital by two people at the party before being airlifted to another hospital. He was transported in critical condition but is expected to survive after surgery to stabilize him, according to a news release. Serratos fled the scene with the weapon but was later arrested without incident at his parents' home in Commerce City. The handgun used in the shooting was recovered. Serratos told police that the victim said he'd never handled a gun and asked to see the weapon. After that, the victim asked Serratos how someone would use a gun in a robbery. Serratos said he pointed the gun at the victim and pulled the trigger, believing the gun to be unloaded. Serato said that he'd been drinking at the party, although a blood draw at the time of his arrest showed a blood alcohol level of zero. One witness said that they heard Serato say, did I just shoot you to the victim? While another said they saw someone else at the party load the handgun without Serato's or the victim noticing. And in more Boulder County news, Boulder County is beefing up wildfire mitigation efforts. Boulder County will add 12 positions to its employee roster in 2023 to assist with wildfire mitigation efforts. According to a news release on Tuesday, the new staff will help create a grant program for strategic forest and grassland management projects and expand the county's existing wildfire partners program, which supports homeowners protecting their homes against wildfire. The commissioner's decision to approve these new positions is a first step in building the capacity required to advance our wildfire mitigation efforts, said Boulder County Commissioner Claire Levy. Building this capacity will help us engage with the community as we determine together how to allocate the funds from the voter-approved sales and use tax. The new staff will be responsible for outreach and education, forestry and grassland projects, home assessments and community chipping in, addition to grant administration. The news release also stated nine of the positions will be funded thanks to ballot measure 1A, which voters approved in November and went into effect January 1st. The other three positions will be funded through the county's general fund. The new positions will cost over a million dollars this year with recruitment and hiring set to begin later this month. We are grateful to voters for supporting our ability to increase the county's wildfire mitigation capacity, expand existing wildfire mitigation programs, and start the process of developing new programs and services to the Plains, Commissioner Marta Lokumin said. The new positions will be in addition to the county's existing wildfire mitigation staff, which will continue to be funded by the county's general fund and sustainability tax. The commissioners recognize the importance of building on the county's current programs through immediate action and developing the capacity to address the differences between the county's current mountain programs and what might be necessary for the eastern half of the county, the news release stated. Boulder County Judge Christy Martinez passes away. Boulder County is mourning the loss of Judge Christy Martinez. She was the first director of the University of Colorado's Corey Wise Innocence Project. The Innocence Project founder Ann England said that Martinez had laid the foundation for the program, which advocates for people who are in prison for crimes that they did not commit. It didn't matter whether if you were someone showing up in her courtroom or someone who was an attorney there or a friend, England said. She just made you feel heard and listened to. She was an incredible shining star in the world, and I think we're all feeling pretty sad about having lost her. Martinez, who died of an unspecified illness, was a fierce advocate for anyone that she loved. Attorney General Phil Weiser said that he had the privilege of hiring her when he was a dean at the University of Colorado Law School. Christy Martinez made me a better dean of the law school because of her deep caring and concern for others. It was infectious, he said. It gave everyone a sense about what it means to be a lawyer and to care and to fight for others. Fight is what Martinez was good at. England said that Martinez was a cancer survivor, a piece of her past that she never shied away from. In a speech at the 2019 CU Law School commencement ceremony, she thanked her colleagues for supporting her during her battles. I've been befriended at times in my life where I lie in a hospital bed and I didn't know if I would survive, and it was lawyers that started to walk down the hall to sit by my side, she said in 2019. They came so many times that the flowers went all the way down the hallway. England said that after her initial cancer recovery, she continued to support others. She actually did a ton of work with other breast cancer survivors. For many years, she went back to the hospital and worked with other people. She really lived life with purpose. Martinez was appointed as a Boulder County judge by then-Colorado Governor John Hickenover back in 2018. She took the bench in early 2019. she just been retained for another term in the November general election. I wanted to be a good lawyer, Martinez told the Boulder camera in 2018 of her move to the bench. As I grew professionally, that became more and more of an aspirational goal, but I didn't start out thinking I wanted to become a a judge. Prior to being appointed a judge, she was a law professor at CU Boulder and a director of the law school's Innocence Project chapter, which had just been renamed after Wise made a $190,000 contribution. She leaves behind a very large and loving family, including her mother, Sally, and daughter. Funeral arrangements and a celebration of life will be disclosed at a future date. Returning to news from Lafayette, students steal the state STEM show. A six-student team at Lafayette's Peak-to-Peak Charter School took inspiration from water quality research following the Marshall Fire as they look for a community problem to address through a STEM project. Junior Alex Zhu, the team leader, said research shows toxic benzene as a common water contaminant following fires, including the local Marshall Fire that burned more than 1,000 homes in December of 2021. But water quality testing is expensive. And it requires sending samples to a lab, slowing the results. So the team designed a water testing device that's inexpensive and efficient for the 13th annual Samsung Solve for Tomorrow STEM competition. That gives individuals and neighborhoods a better option to ensure the water safety after a fire. Our solution gives results in minutes, Alex said. It is much cheaper, faster, and much easier option. The peak to peak team was selected last week as the Colorado winner and will go on to compete against 49 other state winners at the national level. The winning schools were chosen from a pool of 300 state finalists who submitted detailed plans outlining how they would use STEM concepts to address an important community issue. Lafayette Centaurus High School also made it to the state finals. The state winners moving on to nationals will receive a video production kit from Samsung to document their project in a three-minute video. They will also work with a mentor from Samsung to help them build a prototype. In May, judges will name three schools as national winners, giving each $100,000 in prize packages that will include Samsung technology and classroom supplies. Peak-to-peak teacher Christy Letter attended a summer session for educators through Samsung in New York. What she said included guidance for contests and information about the importance the company places on hiring innovators and problem solvers. She added that she's been impressed by the student's commitment and the high level of work on this project. They do extraordinary things, she said. I'm amazed by them. They are pretty awesome. Three of the team members were part of a team that entered the same contest last year. Although they didn't win at the state level last year, they said they've learned valuable lessons from their first attempt, including the importance of assigning roles to team members. They also started on the contest late last year and struggled to settle on a topic. I'm really proud that we got this far, said sophomore Tanisha Tagare. We really expanded on our work. Alex said that the biggest challenge for this year's contest was designing the water quality testing device without existing devices to use as models. They used different machines and parts loaned by teachers to test their ideas to make sure that they would work. It just started with an idea, he said. We didn't know if it would be plausible, if it could actually work. The upperclassmen on the team said that their chemistry and physics classes proved especially helpful. They got help with adding to that knowledge base from peak-to-peak science teachers as well as a retired peak-to-peak teacher who talked to them about using a spectrometer for measurements. It's a lot of new information that I've never learned before, said freshman Penelope Letter. While the project required a lot of work outside of school, Junior, Shira... Sentil Kumar said that the potential to improve equity through a more affordable water quality test was motivating. The testing is not easily accessible now, she said, so this will really help a lot of people. Author shares Sudanese refugee story. Visitors to the Longmont Museum on February 18th got a front row seat. To a story of perseverance and self-acceptance, as told by former Sudanese refugee author and teacher Nibel Bior, Bior, who lives in New Mexico, taught special education at Longmont High School from 2016 to 2018, and she is the author of a recently published children's book entitled "My Beautiful Colors." Her free talk at the museum on 400 Quail Road was one of a handful of local events. Put on for Black History Month by NAACP Boulder County and the Executive Committee of African American Cultural Events. Black History Month is very important to me," Biwes said, "because I feel if it wasn't for those people who came before me to fight for all of our rights, I wouldn't be here today as a former refugee from South Sudan. Justin Veach, who is event and auditorium manager for the museum, said the museum has worked with NWACP Boulder County in the past to celebrate Black History Month in Juneteenth, but he said they can always do more. b Talk was part of a celebration that includes a performance by the Nashville African American Wind Symphony. Our basic principle is one is of the oneness of mankind, said Catherine O'Leary, who is one of the event coordinators. We wanted to do something for Black History Month, and it just came together. Accompanied by a slideshow presentation with pictures and videos, Bjora guided the roughly two dozen attendees through her childhood in Sudan, and her family struggled to find asylum amid the devastating civil war. Coming to the United States as a young teenager, Bior said she experienced colorism from other black students and was often the target of bullying. Loneliness persisted because I didn't have any friends, she said, and I couldn't speak any English, so I really didn't have anyone to communicate with. Through outlets like, like basketball and reading, however, Bior overcame that sense of loneliness, and she realized her own worth. Something in me refused to accept that I was less than anybody else, she said being able to stand up for myself was huge after taking some questions from the audience bior met many guests one-on-one to sign and sell copies of her book benita hensley a longmont resident said she loved bior's talk the way that she can still be resilient and not hateful well that's awesome hensley said Bior followed her talk at the museum with an appearance at the Lafayette Public Library on February 18th, and before that, on February 17th, Bior had visited three Boulder-area schools to meet with students whom she said were good listeners and asked a lot of questions. Around half of the proceeds from Bior's book sales go to My Refugee Story Foundation. It's a nonprofit she established this year to help girls and boys receive education in South Sudan. Bior sold around 10 copies at the museum, but she cares more about the relationships that she's able to form with people through her work. It's the message that counts for me, so much more than the money, she said. I feel that there's a need for stories like mine to be spread so that people can see that it does get better. And in business news, the uh, breakup of the Centura Health Network of Hospitals is not expected to alter Avista Adventist Hospital's plans to build a new health care center in Louisville's yet-to-be-approved Red Tail Ridge development. There's no material impact on Avista's plans at Red Tail Ridge. With this week's announcement, said Avista CEO Isaac Sendros, Adventist Health is the parent company and owns the assets of Avista, and its commitment is to continue with the future location of the Avista Adventist Hospital on the Red Tail Ridge property. Common Spirit Health and Advent Health, two religiously affiliated healthcare systems that combined in 1996 to form Centura Health, announced that they are dissolving their Centura Partnership. That's a network that included 19 hospitals in Colorado and western Kansas. Chicago-based Common Spirit Health which is the nation's largest Catholic health system, owns Longmont's United Hospital, while Advent Health, based in Alta Monte Springs, Florida, owns Avista Adventist Hospital in Louisville. About a year ago, the Boulder County News reported on Avista's intent to relocate from its roughly 30-year-old campus at 100 Health Park Drive in Louisville. To a new operation expected to be built at Redtail Ridge, that's the proposed 2.6 million square foot development, uh, development with a focus on biotechnology facilities, on the roughly 400 acre long vacant former Phillips 66 site off of U.S. Highway 36. The project, which has been in the planning stages for more than three years has proved controversial with Louisville officials and residents. Denver-based developer Brewback Hall Capital Partners LLC and partner Sterling Bay LLC have yet to receive the necessary approvals to break ground. Brewback Hall, which paid over $34 million for the site, initially sought to turn the parcel into a 5.22 million square foot life live-work development anchored by a new corporate campus for medical device maker Medtronic and roughly 1,500-home senior living community that would have been operated by Erickson Living, LLC. Additional planned components included offices, retail space, and apartments, but Medtronic skipped town for a nearby site in Lafayette, and locals spoke out against the housing portion of the project, arguing the thousands of new residents would strain city resources and exacerbate traffic congestion. So Brubach Hall went back to the drawing board and brought forth a scale-back plan, which was eventually approved last year by the Louisville City Council, which applied a dozen conditions to its approval to further limit the scope of the project. After Red Tail Ridge's plans were approved last year, Avista Adventist Hospital confirmed that it is under contract to purchase land in the Red Tail Ridge development for a new hospital. And almost immediately upon the city's approval of Red Tail Ridge, then the opponents of the project cried foul and they set about gathering the signatures required to send the matter to a special. Election, which, as we all remember, the opponents of Red Tail Ridge won. Now, in the months since, updated plans have been bounced around governing bodies, which have yet to give Red Tail's developers the go ahead to break ground. Centros did not comment on the city's processes beyond saying, Our plans are dependent on approvals for Sterling Bay for the overall development. Avista's commitment continues to be staying within this community. That is our focus, he said. Avista officials have generally supported Red Tail Ridge, an area the company views as more accessible and better suited for expansion than the hospital's current home. And just in case you were wondering about bears, bear versus human conflicts up 16%. Report Reports of bear sightings and conflicts with Humans were up 16% in Colorado last year to nearly 4,300, but they were down slightly when compared to 2019 and 2020, all according to an annual report that was issued last week by Colorado Parks and Wildlife on the Front Range east of the Continental Divide. Reports decreased from 2022, but then they grew in the northwest region of the state due to drought and a shortage of natural food sources there ample moisture east of the continental divide created favorable conditions for the growth of natural bear food sources including wild berries and nuts that reduced the needs or the need for bears to seek food in urban areas compared to the previous two years colorado's southeast region saw an 18 percent decrease in bear conflicts while conflicts in the northeast region decreased six percent West of the divide, a late freeze led to food failure, the CPW report says, resulting in a nearly non-existent sources of berries and acorns. Then, in the northwest region, which experienced extreme drought, that saw a nine percent increase in conflicts, while the southwest region saw a three percent decrease. The CBW urges the public to learn how to bear-proof their homes. We need help from the local communities to develop strategies to secure garbage and secure other attractants across bear habitats, said Kristen Cannon. She's deputy regional manager for CPW's Northeast region, according to the CPW release, and ultimately, it will also require individuals to take some responsibility and follow proper guidelines on living appropriately with bears to protect them. CPW says the leading cause of human-bear conflicts continues to be unsecured trash. That's number one. Although bird feeders, livestock, and open garages can also attract bears. And CPW officials urge the public to report bear activity. They believe that some residents may be reluctant to do so, fearing CPW will euthanize the bear. Over the past four years... CP the CPW has relocated relocated 272 bears. And now, as we often do, we go to the left-hand belly courier for news from Niwot and Gunbarrel. Barrel. Here's an article entitled entitled Farm Composting in Boulder County. On February 16th, the Boulder County Community Planning and Permitting staff held a Zoom meeting to discuss composting solutions for local farmers. The meeting was led by Sustainable Agriculture Planner Sabrina Torres and Long Range Planner Andrea Vaughn. Compost helps reduce waste and mitigate climate vulnerabilities, said Torres, it's really rather than sending food and yard scraps to a landfill, composting upcycles these resources into an environmentally beneficial product, and these materials would otherwise break down in landfills and admit methane into the atmosphere. In turn, this becomes a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. The Boulder County Commissioners have made some recent updates to the Land Use Code in order to further sustainability goals among regenerative farming practices, specifically through small-scale decentralized composting operations on farms located in unincorporated Boulder County. The Boulder County website states, Currently, the Land Use Code allows composting incidental to farming on farms up to 1,000 cubic yard limit. However, the code prohibits the collection of composting material from the general public and does not allow retail sales of finished compost products on site. Agricultural community members and local partners pursuing regenerative farming practices have expressed how these provisions act as barriers to local circular economic approaches. For example, farmers incur high costs to import necessary materials from outside of the county in order to make finished compost products. Bond said to update our land use code, we have identified three goals. The first goal is to reduce barriers for local producers who would like to take part in the regenerative planning practices particularly composting which is an accessible tool that helps establish healthier soils and builds an overall healthier ecosystem and agriculture on our agricultural lands goal 2 is this is to close the loop on the circular economy for agricultural producers who may have the interest in providing the community access to composting materials. And the third goal is to develop the code language about what is and what is not allowed. The Front Range is currently facing a compost crisis as large-scale industrial composters such as AONE Organics come to terms with their contaminated waste streams, said Von Fusel, founder and director of Compost Colorado, which is COCO. This broken linear model does not serve the purpose of resource management, which should ensure that nutrients and organic matter circulate back to our soil and community. Dan Mage from EcoCycle and other experts have been advocating for a more decentralized distributed organics management solution for many years. It is clear that community-scale farm-based and distributed compost processing is the most effective way to holistically manage organic resources and results in soil revitalization, carbon sequestration, and higher yields for local farmers, Mage said. Our small compost company collects over 2,000 households and businesses, which ends up being about 15 cubic yards of clean, non-contaminated compostable waste every day. And we're developing a methodology where whereby we set up microprocessing sites at a network of farms to effectively complete the loop. On my family's land, we've got about 24 acres that's mainly been in hay production since my grandfather Jack bought the land in 1972, said Byron Kamenek, owner of Jack's Solar Garden. We've had to make changes to be able to make ends meet because our soils have been degraded for a long time. And so we have solar panels on our farm where we're able to produce more energy, but We constantly buy compost from other places because our land doesn't produce enough compost for us to be able to grow vegetables. It would make much more sense for me to be able to import some compost from my neighbors and from restaurants and from other folks in the area if that could be arranged. Following the meeting, Boulder County Community Planning and Permitting requested community participation in an online questionnaire for a potential update for composting Incidental to farming operations. The county website states this potential land use code update is intended to further the county's goals related to sustainability and climate goals, regenerative farming initiatives, and the development of a local circular economy. This update would allow agricultural producers to source composting material from the public which could then be composted on the farm. The finished compost would be used on-site for farming operations or sold as part of allowed accessory agricultural sales. The project is still in the conceptual phase and a formal public comment period is not yet open. Monarch Improvement Project is taking shape. The Monarch Improvement Project at Hangji Fields, did I say that right? At Monarch Park, is starting to take shape. The You Sports Construction Project which includes building a permanent building for concessions, storage meetings, and permanent bathrooms, is moving forward in spite of the snow and cold weather. Niwot contractor Porchfront Homes is handling construction of the building with Ben Beveridge serving as project manager. Larry Longseth, who served as equipment manager for Niwot Youth Sports for many years with these children, Pat and Robbie, we're participating and is helping coordinate the project. Pag Longseth is now the president of Naiwat Youth Sports. Larry Longseth reported that the concrete pad was poured on February 11th during a stretch of good weather. The rough plumbing is done and we poured the concrete floor on Saturday, he reported. The framing package was delivered last week. We will see walls being raised soon in the next two weeks, weather permitting, I expect Easy Excavation will lay the sewer line to Monarch Road in the next few weeks as well, weather permitting, Longseth said. Nick Davies, who is another NIWAT youth sports alum, owns Easy Excavation. The contractors working on the project are discounting costs, which helps keep the cost affordable. I talked to Ben yesterday, Larry Longseth said. The framing package is on site, and framing may start as early as Monday. His grandchildren got involved as well. Pat's kids help clear the snow so that it's ready when they arrive. Fundraising efforts continue as completion is planned for prior to the 2023 baseball and softball seasons tax deductible donations can be made online at www.niwotsports.org. Niwot band Voltage 85 takes the stage in Memphis. The pandemic inspired many people to pick up new hobbies and it inspired others to further develop their passions into something greater. For Niwot senior Dakota Allison and junior Jasper Allison, The pandemic focused them on their musical training, and they decided to form a band they called Voltage 85. Jasper and I have been doing music our whole lives, Dakota said. We started off in 2020 just us jamming with another guitarist, and it took off from there. The Allison siblings first received training from Mojo's Music Academy, where they were in elementary school. Dakota started on the piano, but she eventually transitioned to singing while Jasper found a love of percussion with the drums. Eventually, they recruited friends who played guitar and bass to form a band, Voltage 85. And they started performing covers of popular songs, often blues and rock, but from other genres as well. They performed at events like Live Music in the Garden, sponsored by Left Hand Brewing, and the Greeley Blues Jam. Their performances eventually attracted the attention of Scott and Tracy Fitzgay, who are officers of the Colorado Blues Society. The Fitzgays encouraged Voltage 85 to perform at the International Blues Challenge, which is nicknamed the IBC in the youth band category, representing the Colorado Blues Society. However, right before the IBC, Voltage 85's guitarists and bassists were unable to continue their tenures with the band, and the Allisons recruited NHS alumnus Jude Dow-Higlund, who plays keyboards, to join the group. I met Jude because he went to Niwot High School, and we played together, Dakota explained. The IBC is based in Memphis, Tennessee, And this year's challenge took place on the historic Beale Street from January 24th through January 28th. Blues musicians and groups globally flocked to the event, which was very exciting for the Allisons. The IBC is not a typical musical festival where crowds go to see the bands. Instead. Dakota described it as a festival mostly for musicians. The youth band category competition was a unique experience for Voltage 85. One of the most valuable results was that they were able to receive constructive feedback from a panel of judges, which often included professional musicians. Tennessee was awesome, agreed Jasper. The most exciting part is being able to play in all these various locations and playing for people who appreciate music and can give you advice. The trio performed at the Hard Rock Cafe and at the BB King Blues Club in Memphis. Both Allison's hope to pursue their interest in music and performance in the future and advise young, aspiring musicians to pursue their passion for it. Just keep doing it, Jasper said. Music provides a lot of great opportunities and experiences. It's something that can open your life to many more experiences and opportunities. You can always stay up to date with Voltage 85 on Facebook and Instagram at Voltage85 Band. And this Saturday, the Wandering Jellyfish Children's Bookstore in IWAT will host its first Drag Queen Storytime at 11 a.m. Co-owner Geraldine Patterson said the event has become so popular that... It's already sold out. Those attending are urged to gather your glitter, your gowns, and tiaras. According to the Wandering Jellyfish website, Miss Shirley will bring a little glitter, a little glamour, and lots of fun during drag queen story time. There will be books about unicorns, cupcakes, narwhals, and even a boy with wings. Let your imagination run wild with these delightful stories. Similar events were started first in San Francisco in 2015 by author Michelle T with the goals of promoting reading and diversity in a fun environment. Patterson noted that the event has apparently sparked some controversy. We have received phone calls and emails from people who are upset about it. We've been told there will be protesters present, but we will also have people present to protect the children. Patterson says she thought the callers were not local and likely found out about the event from Internet searches for similar event. Again, it's at the Wandering Jellyfish this weekend. New Niwot business providing homemade plant-based fare. What started as a way for two friends to give back to the community ended up being the impetus for a new business, plant-based boulder. When the Marshall Fire erupted in December 2021, Niwant area residents Amy Kramer and Mishai Bacher knew that what they could do to help. Both professional chefs and cookbook authors, Kramer said they realized someone needs food, someone needs us. And with that, the two got to work. Reaching out to the Boulder Jewish Community Center, JCC, they arranged to use the center's kitchen to cook for those affected by the fire. And within a week and a half, Kramer said we were up and running. Kramer and Bakker put together the menu, they sourced the food, and they managed the kitchen while JCC provided the food and supplied and managed the volunteers to make it all happen. The duo was cooking once a week, providing approximately 100 pounds of soup or stew and baking cakes, Or cookies to go along with that. Both the chefs are gluten-free, and their meals were all plant-based and gluten-free. And as time went on, the need for cooking once a week wasn't as great, so they reduced their cooking to once a month. What they realized, Kramer said, was, We really love being in the kitchen together. And with that, Plant-Based Boulder was born in November of 2022. We're both passionate about what we do, Kramer said. But the deeper you get into commercial cooking, she also has a business that provides plant-based food for grocery stores, the less you get to be hands-on in the kitchen. And we both really miss that. So each week, the couple cooks plant-based and gluten-free soups, entrees, breakfast, cookies, and desserts. People can order from their website by Sunday for delivery or pick up on the following Tuesday. Baker handles the sweets, and Kramer handles the other parts of meals, which Kramer says is fitting. She, Baker, is sweet, and I'm savory in both personality and cooking style. Kramer said that they are adding new things to the menu weekly to provide plenty of variety. She said people can order as much or as little as they like and as often as they like. There are no commitments, she stated. We get to spend a couple of days cooking together and their mission statement says, feed your heart and soul while simplifying your life. You can always find more about Plant-Based Boulder at www.plantbasedbolder.com. And now turning to local obituaries, Robert Forrest Reikies passed away on Tuesday in January 2023 at the age of 90 in Louisville, Bob was born on June 1st, 1932, in Ashland, Nebraska. He was the third of four children to Forrest and Glendora Reikis. He was survived by his wife of 69 years, Marcella, daughter Susan, Jim, Jean, and Jeff. Bob had four grandchildren, Michael McCain, Kirk Reikis, Devin Reikis, and Alec Reikis, and brother Jerry Reikis of Lincoln, Nebraska. Bob grew up in Ashland, Nebraska, where he attended the Ashland High School. Known for his speed, Bob earned the nickname Bullet Bob as a star athlete on the football, basketball, and track teams. He attended the University of Nebraska at Omaha, where he studied history and education and played basketball. His college studies were interrupted by a draft notice from the Army during the Korean War. Because Bob had an athletic background, the Army recruited him to play basketball with the USO services. That took him on a three-year tour through many parts of Europe. He went on to graduate graduate from the UNO after his discharge from the Army. He began his teaching and coaching career at Ashland High School in 1956, but due to his wife's health concerns, it was necessary to relocate to a drier climate. And that meant that they moved to Boulder, where he finished his master's degree at the University of Colorado. Mom that Bob coached and taught at two Boulder Valley High Schools in Louisville and Boulder. His he his Louisville he led Louisville to a state football championship in nineteen sixty two. Due to his love for helping youth, he also started the first and only AAU track team for female athletes in Boulder. He later transitioned to Boulder Tech, where he lived his passion for helping students and later adults through the Christian Career Counseling Center of Sacred Heart of Mary. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.